Welcome to Frameline. I'm Barbara Kosofsky, here as usual with my favorite critic, Courtney Small. Hello, how are you doing today? Great, how are you? I am doing well. Terrific. It's a good time a year for, well, pretty much any time of year is good for movies, but I feel like we're in the, uh, we're hitting the fall season, so there's always interesting things coming out. Yes, everybody's like, it's like everybody's ramping up for the holiday season in terms of uh, releases. Mm-hmm. So from here on until like Christmas Day, it's going to be crazy with releases. Um, so we're just in that period right now, right? So why don't you start us off with a couple of big ones that have, uh, that are sure. Being- well, I will um, talk about the, the film that setting theaters this week, and it is Napoleon, the new film by um, director Ridley Scott, and it's a pretty much epic feeling of um, the life of Napoleon Bonaparte, pretty much from when he's a um, a commander in the French army, all the way to him being an emperor and then being um, exiled and. It's, I say it's epic because the film's running time as it stands, I think two and a half hours, maybe a little bit more, but he apparently is releasing a four hour cut on Apple TV at, at some point soon, I guess after the, the theatrical release. And I wonder, I feel the, the four hour cut might um, explain a lot of the holes that are in this film. Um, I, on the grand scale, it is definitely epic. Visually, it's it's quite stunning. The battle scenes are are, are jaw dropping. They they really do kind of capture the the tense nature of war, the mundane nature, all of that. But Napoleon himself, as much as Napoleon is a tyrant, the way how Ridley Scott and Joaquin Phoenix portray Napoleon, it's basically he's a buffoon. Who just has an ego problem, and so <laughs> oh, the, no. so the film is actually a lot funnier than you expect it to be. If you because you kind of go in thinking it's going to be a historical epic, very much um, along the lines of like a Braveheart film, but you realize they they truly think that Napoleon was was a buffoon, and they play it as such. So Napoleon's ego comes across very comical and. This is especially true when they focus on his relationship with his um, wife, Josephine, and they have a very kind of turbulent love affair where she clearly understands him. He's pining for her. He's constantly writing her letters, even when she's cheating on him and all of this stuff. But their their bond is quite interesting. And Vanessa Kirby is wonderful in the film. I just feel like we don't get enough of her because... The film tries to cover so much ground from pretty much the French Revolution to the Napoleonic Wars and all the various rivalries. There's a lot of characters in this film who kind of pop up and should have a bigger presence. But just due to the way how the film is structured in its current two and a half hour format, they feel underused. Um, and I would say Josephine is is also one of those characters. There's a lot in this film that occurs where it doesn't quite resonate the way one would expect it to and i feel that maybe in the longer cuts he delves into the side characters far more and their impact on napoleon personally for me as 
fun as it was, and I was I was not bored for the two and a half hours. I was entertained. This film has not stayed in my mind long. And the more I think about it, the less I like it because I realize I've learned I learned very little about Napoleon the man outside of he's a man child and he he has an ego. Like when he's emperor, I don't feel the impact of any of his actions on France as a whole. Like, you know, whenever he's not at war, it's him and Josephine. That's the entire storyline. We don't see what happens. Whereas at the beginning of the film, you get a little more insight into the volatile nature of France, both politically and in the streets. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting film, but I don't think it, it fully works in its, in its format. And um, I don't know if you've seen, but really Scott on his current press tour has basically just doesn't seem to care. He, people have asked him about historical accuracy thing. He doesn't care. He's, he's really, really Scottish in terms of, I've made the film, you'll sit, you'll like it, move on. And this film is not one of those films where you can kind of just give him the benefit of the doubt because you know he's the he's Ridley Scott. It's there there are some flaws in it, but you know, so for me it's an uneven film. I think some people will like it based off of the epic scale of it, but I just if you're looking to learn about Napoleon, this is not the the film. Do you think do you think maybe Ridley Scott is kind of like like I don't care? in his manner because somebody cut it from his vision of four hours he's the blade runner director right he didn't want it cut down yes but in recent years has been very um i don't want to say confrontational but he's he's definitely the type of artist that doesn't seem to like being questioned about his work whatsoever so it's so they it's, should it's almost, not put him on press tours, right? Well, it's it's almost become a, a joke on social media in itself that you know whenever a new Ridley Scott film comes out, you're more interested in his comments on in during the press tour because you know he's going to say some wild things than what's actually occurring in the film. Um, and I feel like if you're going to make a historical epic, even if people challenge the historical accuracy, there are ways that you can approach that post saying historians were never there what do they know kind of thing like it's uh, well you know there's been ample books and stuff written about napoleon so this kind of ah, i thought it might work let's just leave that scene in you know there are going to be some people that will criticize i i'm not one of those you know, people but i can see some historians questioning it i just for me my main criticism is at the end of the day okay napoleon's a buffoon and like you know, why was he? If he's such a buffoon, talk about that impact on history. Like you get the sense that a lot of people died under him. He had an ego. He loved Josephine. That's essentially two and a half hours of of, of Napoleon, kind of Ooh. summed up. So, yeah. okay. it's an interesting one. I just yeah. All um, right, but well, I will I will one, shift yeah. gears to another biopic of sorts one that i i liked and it's obviously a different tone pulling is very grand very violent whereas sofia coppola's priscilla is very quiet uh, very reserved and it's apparently the film is based off of the book that priscilla presley had wrote about her life and it really follows um teenage priscilla as she meets elvis presley they fall in love and then she kind of you know, obviously moves in with him, marries him, and her life to that point. Whereas Baz Luhrmann's Elvis last year, 
I guess offered a somewhat sensitive portrait of Elvis within the Baz Luhrmann flashiness uh, of it all. And it was really kind of style. This one portrays Elvis as a controlling monster, uh, a man who, you know, was lusting after a teenage girl, um, even though he was, you know, being very respectful, did not have the sexual interactions, I think, until they they were married. But as Priscilla gets closer to Elvis and they become more of an item, you really see Elvis as a controlling individual over her, controlling her dress, her clothes, essentially kind of locking her in his state, you know, kind of you know, sending her to a school where she can't really interact with with boys, all these type of things, while he's off making movies with Anne Margaret, possibly having affairs. Um, and it's it's a really interesting contrast. So you have this coming of age film where you're seeing Priscilla go from the, I guess, the doe-eyed girl to becoming her own woman and starting to realize the toxicity that that she is in. And as I said, it's all done very like a very quiet kind of drama um the sofia coppola style of it's stylish because it has like some modern music to it but it still has a classical feel similar to um the virgin suicides that kind of aesthetics uh, but it's really held together by the performance of kaylee i think it's kaylee spaney who plays priscilla uh, she's absolutely wonderful in the film and uh, jacob Elrodi, who plays elvis this is i think the first time i've noticed him i thought he did a really good job as well because i find actors tend to when they try to play elvis they try to do all the mannerisms and the the voice and that's essentially oh he sounds like elvis that's great whereas this one you know i didn't feel like he was trying to mimic elvis but just bring a new definition to how we we look at elvis so uh quite an interesting film i i quite liked it it's not a flashy film like baz Luhrmann, but if you're interested in a different side of the elvis priscilla story um i would i would definitely recommend priscilla what would you say to like some people criticize uh sophia coppola for uh, she she tends her stories tend to be poor little princess trapped you know she's got everything and like but she's trapped in a castle um, I wouldn't necessarily argue with that. I, I find as much as I like her films, Priscilla Coppola tends to focus on particular type of young woman. Um, and the, that type of woman that comes from a usually suburban, like middle class or upper middle class family that makes decisions that no one quite really pushes against um and in this case you see pushback from her parents um in terms of questioning why is this older man so interested like why does he keep inviting you to parties and so interested and but even that you know i guess elvis works his charm and they say okay you can go to this party like she there's not much in terms of pushback and the world around Elvis is very welcoming to Priscilla. Um, the maid he has, his grandmother, they're all, they all embrace her like family. It's just Elvis himself. Who's obviously the controller of everything. He is the one that really shows like the, the true dark side 
of fame, like constantly pushing pills on her to help her sleep or or whatnot. And it, it's a very eerie portrayal. Um, you know, would Priscilla have been wise to what was going on earlier and maybe changed the course of, of her trajectory? Yes, but I think there's also the aspect of as a young woman coming of age you're getting attention from you know a, a, a person that you find attractive and it just happens to be a person who's a major celebrity and you're getting insight into the celebrity that no one else can right so i think by the time she starts to realize the the cost of it and the consequence um she's already in too deep at that point to to realize it's not like um the oh the bling ring where you have these wealthy kids committing crimes just because they they can and you know parents who don't care about them and just kind of letting them do what they want in this case you you do see that her parents care about her but they they're not using their will that they could have to try and protect her so she kind of falls into that those, those trappings it's it's an interesting film i i yeah. I think it's it's a good conversation piece, and as I said, it would make a fascinating double bill with the Baz Luhrmann Elvis, just to see how the, a male perspective of the Elvis mythology versus a female perspective of the Elvis mythology, and it's they're two vastly different takes yeah. on on the on the same era, which is good. Um, if we want to continue the theme of films based off of real life people, do you want to talk about? the comedy next goal wins yeah next goal wins is the the latest film by taika waititi and uh so you know we know him from well okay so he's he's uh known for is it marvel movies uh, well thor. he's yeah he, he's done the the last two thor movies um thor, yeah. thor ragnarok but, but he's also known for um well, Jojo Hunt Rabbit. For the Wilderbeast and Jojo Rabbit, yeah. Yeah, Jojo Rabbit. So Jojo Rabbit, you know, it, it kind of had this kind of comedy drama. Uh, what I like about uh, Waititi's stuff is that sometimes it's hard to define. Sometimes it's very simple, but sometimes it's hard. And Next Goal Wins is it's a, basically a biography of a sports team and a biography of the coach. And I, I say those things separately because they're intertwined but they, you can look at them separately as well within the film. And like, he sort of treats them like two things, uh, two entities happening at the same time and how the two entities are interacting. And so we learn about both, right? And uh, the sports team is the American Samoa national football team. And actually the film is based on a documentary about this team. And um, they, <laughs> they made it in 2014, uh, Mike Brett and Steve Jameson made a documentary about this coach, uh, Thomas Rongen, and this this team, American Samoan team, because they were considered, like, if not the worst, one of the worst football teams, football as in soccer teams in the world. They were trying to qualify for the 2014 FIFA World Cup, which is like a big deal if you don't know soccer. So this is uh this is a, a dramatization of that. And but anyway, Waititi, um he's got a lot of things going on in this film and it doesn't always mesh. 
basically. And the whole comedy drama doesn't always mesh. It, Michael Fassbender is wrong in the coach. And his performance is uneven as well. But Rangan, let's let me get this straight right off the bat, is not super likable at the beginning. And in fact, there's this sort of like tension that I had, not even trusting him, even as he was interacting with the team. He doesn't seem to trust the team. He doesn't seem to care about the team. They don't trust him. He's just some guy who's like, but they they're more much more welcoming because the culture is much more welcoming. So there's a clash of cultures. Um, there's just like personalities, like his his whole world. He's Dutch American, and um, he he just doesn't understand their whole culture of the team, but also the culture of the the place. And there's a lot of learning going on on both sides. Um, but there's a lot of uh, clashing at the beginning. Um, so, I mean, basically, it's it's one of your basic underdog films in the sense that bo in both cases, the team and the person are underdogs because he's got a lot going against him. Um, and it, there's a little bit too much focus on his struggles for my liking. Um, but what I really liked was the game parts. Like I'm sort of a soccer fan, but mm -hmm. like some of the parts when they're actually playing was so highly charged and visceral. It's like, it's like one of the joys of sports is this, this kind of like the way it's filmed. Uh, it really brings out the joy of the sport and the, the, the charge. Of, and it's sort of like, almost better than being there because it's shot in a way that you could never see you know that stuff mm -hmm. um but i think for people who are it's a crowd pleaser so i think for people who like to root for the underdog this is this is going to be your film and if you like soccer if you love soccer i think uh, you're going to love this film and as a critic i just sit back and go well i think it's uneven I agree it's uneven. Um, I enjoyed the film. I think because of Taika Waititi's track record, um, I think a lot of people went into this with like really high expectations, expecting yeah, like another kind a, of yeah, Jojo around it. And really what he has done is just made a feel-good comedy. Um, when I saw this at TIFF, he introduced the film and he was saying about how film today is so serious like everything that we praise and we consider highbrow art give awards to are all serious films he says comedy does not get that level of respect and he said sometimes you just want a feel-good goofy comedy and that's what he made um he was a fan of the documentary and essentially this film is that goofy comedy it doesn't necessarily resonate with you you kind of know all the beats but i laughed a lot um it was one of those films where my kids will probably have a ball watching all the people get hit in the head and you know just yeah. the this the silliness and on that level i think if he achieves what he set out to do um will this film last long in your conscience no uh but it's i say it's one of those kind of like perfect saturday afternoon if it's on tv type comedies where you're doing stuff around the house and 
that's the lens pops on you. You sit, you lie for a bit, you don't really invest too much in it. You go on your day and, you know, it's yeah. just a, a happy little diversion. So I did, I did like it, but I, I do feel that critics are being a little too harsh on it because their expectations are what they were expecting and what he delivered are two completely different things. Ooh. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is my opinion. <laughs> well, of course, I respect your opinion. <laughs> yeah. I had a lot of conversations with people during TIFF that were making it sound like it was the worst thing on earth. And look, it's it's a straightforward, goofy, underdog comedy. It's yeah, it's not, the worst. Ex- it's not the worst. Yeah, it's, it's what, got it's what you expect. I mean, it's it's yeah. I it's, it's not high art. As I said, it will not last in your conscious long, but for however long it ran, I watched it, I laughed, rolled my eyes at a few of the sentimental yeah. beats, which I knew were coming, you know, and it but at the end of it, it was it was I had fun. I had yeah. fun watching it. And sometimes you just need a a goofy thing to to laugh at. Yeah, I'll agree uh, with you there. I will bring a comedy which I feel leads a little more on the the high end, um, just in terms of the fact that it's really doing interesting things that you don't often see in films. And it's a film that's opening this week called Dream Scenario by Christoph um, Borg- Borgili, I believe is how you pronounce his last name. And it stars Nicolas Cage. And the premise of this film is Nicolas Cage is a man who's, I guess, a professor um, who's been meaning to write this book and he he can't seem to get around to write this kind of profound book on a really boring subject. But as an a- academic, he thinks the world needs to, to to hear this book. But he actually becomes a celebrity because of the book he wants to write. But the fact that he starts appearing in everyone's dreams. Um, slowly, everyone around him just has these dreams where this strange, balding man appears. And everyone links it back to his character, Paul. And you realize that it's not even like an exciting dream where he's like a swashbuckler or a, a, a steamy dream where he's the the heartthrob. It's just things happen and he's this random guy that walks by and does absolutely nothing. Or, you know, you might be in a car accident and then there's Paul in your dream just kind of staring but not doing anything. He becomes essentially a viral phenomenon because everyone's talking about this guy. Everyone's dreaming about him. And the film gives glimpses into other people's dreams, but it really is a commentary on our need for celebrities, but also how people go viral and think that their lives will become better because of fame, but fame actually being a corrupting force in our society. So as Pearl becomes well well known is kind of basking in the fame and has like mad companies wanting to work with him, things slowly start to get out of hand. And you, you know, he, he does not heed the warnings that you need to slow down and not necessarily put yourself out there so much. Um, and he has to start to deal with the consequences of of fame. And the film has some really dark comedic moments. There's one scene in particular that is so cringeworthy that you could, the entire audience, when I saw this at TIFF, you could just feel was kind of uh, physically repelling and you can hear the groans because something happens in this film and 
it just keeps going worse and worse for him. Like it's a really embarrassing um, personal moment. But when you're in an audience, you're all feeling the personal moment with him, and it it just enhances the humor because we're all cringing for him. Yeah. Um, and it I think it it really works. It's a different type of comedy, as I said. The film has been kind of compared to the works of Ari Aster, who did um, Midsommar and Hereditary, in terms of that kind of different style. It's not as dark as those films in terms of like horror, but it's it's definitely a dark comedy um, that has a lot to say and actually surprising amount of emotion weaved in. So it's a different film. It's not going to be for everyone, but I absolutely love Dream Scenario and, and would highly recommend it. Is it a uh, horror? It's labeled on IMDb as like a horror comedy. I I don't think it delves into the horror aspects um, too much, but the dark comedy is dark at times. Like you, as a person who I know is not a big horror fan, I think you would be able to handle Dream Scenario. Like I don't think I you'll have uh, fun with it though. Would I be able yes. to have like fun? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you'll you'll definitely have fun with it. I I. I can't recall any truly gory moments. Um, there's just a lot of, I don't want to use the word weird, but um, a lot of strange weird, things weird happen. Good. Weird, yeah, is it, good. weird is good. Weird is good. But it is, it is labeled as a horror comedy, and I can see why it would get that label, especially when things start to turn bad. Um but it's not in the sense of you you need to kind of cover your eyes or you're gonna have nightmares. It's you'll think more back to the comedic aspects of of this film. And again, you will think a lot more about fame, social media, how everyone wants to go viral and and be known for something. Um, and whether or not that desire that we now have, everyone wants to be recognized, is that recognition really worth? the consequences that that come with it so it's definitely a uh, a unique a unique film um speaking of unique comedies you would you want to talk about fallen leaves yes <clears throat> fallen leaves is one of my favorite films of the year and it is one of the, my favorite films i think it is talk about weird <laughs> it is offbeat <laughs> wickedly offbeat in a way it is a romantic comedy and it's notable like in the way that it does it because it's so minimalist like i would even describe the um the cinematography the look of the film it's kind of pallid you know it's like so pale but um it's not like the shots are like really boring like to look at it's but it, let me tell you, Fallen Leaves is by the, the Finnish master cinema artist, uh, Aki Korsmaki. He, he's known for this kind of thing. And, but the thing is, it's in its understated way, it's so hilarious. I found myself laughing at a time when I really, really needed laugh, laughing, you know? Um, I found myself laughing my head off. And then it like so it's so weirdly minimalist, but then he dabs in this little art house flair. And so not to turn people off, it's like this is not an art house film. Um, this is like so down to earth and and tells you things, shows you things that we can all relate to. And like I said, it's a it's a love story 
So this is a film about two very lonely people, Ansa and Holopa, and how they meet, fall in love at first sight, and through a series of unlikely, almost like an eccentric comedy of errors, they eventually go on a date. <laughs> like, go on a date, and then after that, like, eventually... But there's comedy of errors throughout the whole thing. And, and uh, we can all relate on some level to, to that kind of all these mishaps happening and stuff. It's, it's just a little bit, although it's minimal, it's a little bit like like he just leans on it a bit, you know, and makes it a little bit much. Some of these mistakes that happen um, and that that's part of the hilarity is that like so at one point it's minimal and then the, the next point it's like it's a bit too much right um and one of the like the best scenes is they go to the the movies and this is the great thing about Korzmaki. he's like what i said about the art house flares like he's throwing in references to every filmmaker like that you can think of and so there's Bresson, like the great French filmmaker, which fine, not everybody knows or cares about Bresson, but Jim Jarmusch, I mean, and you, you've got like this hilarious scene from this hilarious film. You can only hear it um, while you're watching these people watch it. And, and you have to see, like, this is a film that you have to see with an audience, I think, you know, so that you can see, and it's it's those moments, and it's in the visuals, and it's it's like, it's just mesmerizing, and uh, he punctuates things with um, with these art house things, and I, I, I'm repeating myself, but anyway, it's like, it shows you how wonderful the, the rhythms of daily life can actually be and how you can find surprising things in it. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that one as as well. It's it's definitely offbeat, but I found the the two leads quite charming and their little idiosyncrasies um really fascinating and I, the the way the female character in this one is gonna cook him dinner so she has to go out and buy an extra plate because she literally only has the one plate that she she eats off of and little things <laughs> like that and even the way how the the dialogue works with the secondary characters you're talking about like all the different film references um that he makes in the film and i kept thinking about um how hartley uh the new york filmmaker in terms of just that deadpan style of delivery um and seeing it here like they I was drawing a lot of parallels, but I think they, they're both two completely different type of, of filmmakers. And this one was quite enjoyable. It's a, a very offbeat romantic comedy, but I was I was glad I, I saw it. Yeah, and the funny thing about, about referencing a Jim Jarmusch film directly is that Korsmaki and Jarmusch are like buddies and have appeared in each other's films. And um they definitely have a like the, a similar style in terms of offbeat and the way that the characters are and the way that the characters interact. So if you like Jim Jarmusch, I, I think that's part of the reason that I just loved this film so much was because it just, my brain just like resonated with like Jarmusch as well. Like, you know, it's like the double whammy. It was almost like there was a dialogue that wasn't direct, but it was in my head because I love Jarmusch so much, right? And so this film is like so 
so similar to his aesthetic, his like sensibilities, you know? Yeah. So I, there's a lot going on. And, and the, the beauty of it is you don't even need to know these other filmmakers. You, you just notice that there's something else being thrown in and that it's resonating in a way, you know, and that, that he's obviously like drawing in other influences, drawing in other things to augment or accent what he's doing. Right. Anyway, I could talk about this one forever. So you have to stop. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's, that's great. Um, the last one I'll talk about to, to wrap things up is the, New film um, by filmmaker David Finchner, and you know we're talking about masters of of cinema. I'd put him up there as as one of them. He he was known for uh, making Zodiac, Seven, The Social Network, um, which I you know all of those I think are are wonderful films. Other people might know him from the uh, Curious Case of Benjamin Button or Go with a Dragon Tattoo. Anyway, he has a brand new film out that's um, on Netflix. It's a film he made in conjunction with Netflix called The Killer. And it stars Michael Fassbender, who we talked about earlier in Next Goal Wins. Uh, this one, he is also playing a character that isn't necessarily likable, but he doesn't have to be because he's a killer. He's a hitman for hire. And a lot of this film focuses on not only him as a hitman, but the consequences of what happens when a job goes wrong. So the first part of this film is just watching him prepare for this job and the mundane nature and the tedious nature of him having to wait for the mark to appear. You're hearing his inner monologue, almost like he's giving you a, a play-by-play on how to be a successful hitman, the things, the type of patience and um, dedication you need. If you want to talk about Jim Jarmusch for, for a minute, if you think of Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, how in that film, the main hitman is um, reading The Art of War and is constantly kind of reciting, you know, things from that book that he's learning. Similar in this one, Fastbender is just kind of telling you all the things that you need to know to be a successful killer and why he's good at what he does until a particular hit goes wrong and he finds himself having to through a series of events basically track down the people that have hired him um because as i said something went wrong and people tried to make sure that he, they um his role doesn't get traced back to them and they take they make things a little personal shall we say and he has to handle business but this is not like john wick where you kill the man's dog he's coming after you but it's just guns blazing action sequence after action this is a very much more methodical approach david fincher really draws out the the search so he has to figure out how am i gonna track down these individuals especially when you work in a network where everything is on a need to know kind of basis so you're watching him as he's going place to place trying to put the pieces together the clues together so that he can find the information he needs to get revenge on the people that are trying to take him out. So it's, it's, it's quite different. I would, the one thing I will say is when I first got to watch the film, I tried to watch it late at night and it's a very more methodical pacing. Again, I think I was expecting more of a John Wick, a lot of action and there are action beats in it, but because of the slow rhythms of it and his soothing voiceovers, 
I fell asleep the first time I tried to watch it. Watch it again in the daytime, not at like 10 o'clock at night. And I found this film absolutely riveting um, for, for what it is. It's I wouldn't say it's Fincher's, you know, I don't know if it's up there with his best works, but it is still a really good film um, from a, a subject matter that I feel I've seen many times on screen, but yet this one offered a little something different. And there's a, a great cameo by Tilda Swinton in the film because she's always just wonderful. And even the the actors that appear, like um, there's an actor, Charles Purnell, who a lot of people might remember from Top Gun Maverick. He has a great scene. Like even the actor that played the cab driver in one scene, like they, Fincher has a really great individuals for little moments that make it feel a, a lot better. So I recommend The Killer. It's streaming on Netflix now. So, um, so it's, I think it had a theatrical run earlier, but it's on Netflix, so you can stream it there. Great. Okay. So that's a lot of options right now. And yes, <laughs> we're just going to keep adding them uh, because there's <laughs> just going to be more releases coming out. So keep up with us. We'll, we'll try to keep up with them. You keep up with us. And um, that's it for Frameline for this week. Thanks for listening.